collection of Charles Waddy, also known as Thistledown's Correspondence. As Thistledown, with responses. Article 1 of 7, as taken from the Greenock Telegraph and Clyde Shipping Gazette, dated Monday the 2nd of April 1883. The Treaty of Union between England and Scotland, with an historical introduction by Thistledown. Messrs Waddy and Co have done a real service to Scotchmen at the present time by publishing in pamphlet form the exact terms of the Treaty of Union between England and Scotland. There is the same disposition now in some quarters as there was at the period of the Union to override the wishes and interests of the people of the smaller kingdom, and it behoves the latter to contend earnestly for their rights, for upon no other condition are they likely to secure them. Scotchmen have been patient and long-suffering under much neglect, but there is now a spirit among them which is likely to go on developing and increasing until the management of their affairs is put on a much more satisfactory footing than at present. Every effort to advance this good work should be hailed with satisfaction, and we therefore welcome the publishing of the Treaty of Union and Thistledown's historical introduction as being in this direction. Thistledown brings to our recollection the bitter feeling that pervaded the minds of the English people against the Scotch immediately previous to the treaty, as evinced by their determined hostility to the African or Indian Company and the Darien scheme started by Scottish merchants and others, and to the warlike attitude England assumed when the Scots, indignant at the treatment they had received, showed a disposition to again take up an independent position as a nation. England at that time fitted out 24 men of war to prevent the Scotch trade with France, almost the only trade they possessed, and declared the Scots in England aliens. It was at this crisis that the East Indiaman Worcester of London, having run into the Firth of Forth for shelter, was confiscated at the suit of the Scotch African Company as a reprisal on the English and it having likewise transpired that Captain Green had made a prize of a Scottish ship he had met with in the Eastern Seas, murdering her captain, Drummond, and all the crew, the English captain and his officers were arrested by the Scots, tried by a jury, found guilty, and executed. From this incident it is evident the blood of the nation was up, and things were tending to an open rupture between the two countries when, fortunately, a change of ministry took place in England and the election of a parliament more favourable to the Scots. The union desired by the Scottish nation at this time was a federal one, and when it was found that their commissioners had departed from that understanding, the indignation of the country knew no bounds, and open revolt was shown in some places. But the thing was done, and after a time the bitter feeling of the Scots quieted down that the terms of the treaty were not according to what the people were prepared to contend for was a palpable fact. But a mechanical majority in the Scottish Parliament, whose interests lay in having the treaty approved, carried its point against the wish of the nation. That the treaty has been of benefit to both countries cannot be doubted, but that all the prosperity of Scotland is due to it, as some would assert, is far from being the case. Thistledown does well to remark. It was the invention of the steam engine and steamboat 
both the outcome of Scotch genius that gave her that marvellous start and brought about her present prosperity, which has been shared by the rest of the civilised world. Scotland has simply thriven because the English have let her alone and she has been a mind to attend to her own business and make the best of present circumstances. Thistledown considers that a minister for Scotland, while a good thing, is not sufficient for our needs. The evils are too deeply rooted to be removed by any minister, however able. His suggestion is that the House of Commons should be divided into three equal divisions, sitting simultaneously in London, Dublin and Edinburgh, and reuniting in the after part of the session in London to give their exclusive attention to imperial affairs. But how this suggestion could be worked out, he does not condescend to specify. Whatever the proper remedy may be to put the legislative affairs of Scotland on a proper footing, there can be little doubt some radical reform is needed. Is it reasonable or fair that pressing legislation for Scotland should be year after year prevented because English Tory and Irish obstructives block the way in the imperial legislature? Many questions of importance for the Northern Kingdom are awaiting solution, and had the Scottish people only to deal with their own representatives, it would not be long before that solution was obtained. Some of the fears entertained by many of our forefathers as to the evil effects likely to flow from the Treaty of Union have been proved to be groundless, but the one arising from the swamping of Scotland's members in the Imperial Parliament has not been of the number. For, though we have received 15 additional representatives since the Union, that remains as palpable as ever. We do not send Tory obstructives to Parliament. Neither as a nation have we any quarrel to settle with Ireland. Why then should we be punished for other people's sins? Let Scotland therefore demand, with united voice, that the present state of things must cease, and that in the future means must be provided by which we must have much greater control over those matters that affect ourselves as a nation. Article 2 of 7, as taken from the Scotsman, dated Tuesday the 4th of December, 1883. English Jurisdiction in Scottish Cases Sir, there are very few Scotsmen who have read your article on the R. Ewing case this morning, but must feel grateful to you. In the rather dreary outlook for our national independence, it is no small comfort to see our leading journals standing up so manfully for the rights of our country. If you will pardon me saying a few words on this subject, I will feel obliged. It seems to me that Scotsmen who go to London to defend cases brought against them by Englishmen commit a grave er error of judgment. In the 19th article of the Treaty of Union are these words and that no causes in Scotland be cognizable by the Court of Chancery, Queen's Bench, Common Pleas, or any other court in Westminster Hall, and that the said courts, or any other of the like nature, after the Union, shall have no power to cognize, review, or alter the acts or sentences of the judicature within Scotland, or stop the execution of the same. The Lord Chancellor of England has done what is here distinctly forbidden, but in the name of common sense, why do Scotsmen not seek the protection of their own courts? No act of the British Parliament can set aside their rights. They are secured to them by solemn engagement, and it would be an act of treason to the Constitution to try and set them aside. 
Unless Scotsmen are prepared to stand up for their rights, our nationality will be snuffed out, and a country that survives its honour will have nothing left worth living for. The English government, listening to the advice of that meanest thing that crawls, your Anglified Scot, have set themselves deliberately to extinguish our separate national existence. The process has been going on for years, but they will find they have to reckon with the people of Scotland, and it is not unknown in our past history that our worst enemies have been our own unworthy sons. There is a dangerous habit crept into our land, and which, if not checked, will eat out the heart of the country, and that is the appeal to the House of Lords. At the time of the Union, the appeal to the House of Lords was retained because no one would go to London and it would stop vexatious litigation. In ancient times, when Scotland had a separate Parliament, the appeal from the Court of Session to the Lords was an appeal to our highest court, our own Lords, but as it is now managed in London, the appeal is from Scottish judges to English, to judges who know nothing of our law and very little of our country. Every case is looked at through English spectacles and our decisions are set aside and English law imported into Scotland. In this or Ewing case, the same English judges will sit as a Scottish Court of Appeal from the Court of Session. Will they be likely to set aside their own judgment? If English lawyers had any modesty or sense of fair play, they would leave Scottish cases to Scotsmen, but they must dip their fingers into our dish and extract all the sweets out of it. Let the readers of Bleak House think what they may expect if Scotsmen are to be subjected to the Court of Chancery. That and worse will follow unless Scotsmen speak out. I am, etc. Thistledown. Article 3 of 7, as taken from the Scotsman, dated Friday the 7th of December 1883. English Jurisdiction in Scottish Cases Sir, I am sure all true Scotsmen will thank your correspondent Thistledown for his letter which appeared in your columns on Tuesday last on the jurisdiction of English courts over Scotsmen. If Nemo, who writes as an Anglo-Scot in your columns of today, would buy Thistledown's pamphlet in the Treaty of Union, he might get his eyes opened. I don't know what right the English Lords have to overrule any decision of the Court of Session, the highest court in this country. If they have the right, it has been given to them by such men as Thistledown calls the meanest thing that crawls, viz. Anglo-Scotsmen. I have met them, both at home and abroad, men who, when they get on among Englishmen, are ashamed of the land of Bruce and Wallace, and even some of our law lords, when they get an English judgeship in the Court of Appeal, forget that they should be Scotsmen first, instead of sitting on an English bench like dummies, witness the report in your columns of the R. Ewing case. The Irish teach us a lesson in nationalism. I am, etc., a. Brandane. Sir, I have read with pleasure the letters of your correspondent Thistledown and others in Yesterday's Scotsman. It is quite clear that by the Treaty of Union English courts were never intended to have any jurisdiction in Scotland, and it is an open question whether any appeal to the House of Lords from the Supreme Courts in Scotland should be tolerated. 
It would seem that our Scottish courts are, however, not altogether free from blame, for the best method of testing the jurisdiction of the English courts would have been to refuse to enforce their decrees, and this would have brought matters to a crisis. The whole matter of the relations of Scotland, England and Ireland requires a thorough overhaul. The fact is, London is to a certain extent a huge sponge sucking the lifeblood of both Scotland and Ireland, and no other country in Europe, excepting perhaps France, is so cursed with centralisation as the British Islands, and to its shame be it said, the present government has not been altogether free from blame, as it has not set its face against centralisation as it ought. If England thinks, however, that she can reduce Scotland to the condition of a province like Wales, she is greatly mistaken, and also if she thinks that Scotland will submit to become a mere milk cow for the courts of chancery and needy London lawyers. Rather than that this should occur, we will agitate for a repeal of the present form of a union and the substitution of a federal one. The present form of union has not been so beneficial to Scotland as some Englishmen will have us believe, but our prosperity is due entirely to our own industry, and had we had a federal union instead of the present, a great deal of Scottish money at present flowing into London would remain at home. Should an agitation for a repeal of the union arise here, it will be a most serious affair for the English, more so than in Ireland as it will be conducted in a different manner, Scotland having greater wealth in Ireland to conduct and carry on an agitation, and Scotsmen abroad will join in the movement also, and should we join hands with Ireland, we will bring England to her senses. Should Scotland be, therefore, driven into returning Scottish Home Rule members of Parliament, the English will have themselves to blame, as they are stirring up towards themselves in Scotland a feeling similar to what exists in Ireland. It is to be hoped that the national meeting to be held in Edinburgh in January will convince them that Scotland is in no mood to be trifled with. I am, etc. Angus. Article 4 of 7 As taken from the Scotsman, dated Monday the 10th of December 1883, the Treaty of Union Sir, I would like to endorse the suggestion of progress with this addition that the deans of the procurators throughout Scotland might call a meeting of their members and enter their protest against the judgment of the Lord Chancellor. This would strengthen the hands of our excellent friend the Lord Advocate. Public bodies such as town councils, chambers of commerce and trades councils might also approach Mr Gladstone, the head of the government, and a Scotch member, and point out to him that the English judges have trampled upon the constitution, invaded our liberties and grievously insulted the people of Scotland. It may be interesting to some of your readers to remind them that what has now happened was foreseen by our ancestors who said that being a poor people with only a handful of members in the British Parliament, their liberties would continually be liable to invasion from their great and powerful neighbours the English, to which Defoe, the historian of the Union, replied that, as the Parliament of Great Britain was founded, not upon the original rights of the peoples, as the separate parliaments of England and Scotland were before, but upon the treaty which is prior to the said parliament, and, consequently, superior, 
so for that reason it cannot have power to alter its own foundation or act against the power which formed it, since all constituted power is subordinate and inferior to the power constituting. This is true. The British Parliament have not the power to alter the treaty, much less English judges. How then is it done? By setting the constitution at defiance. Your correspondent Angus speaks of a federal union. That is the union that our ancestors wished, and the present treaty was thrust down our throats in spite of the earnest protest of the whole people of Scotland. It will be an evil day for the United Kingdom if the old animosity between the English and Scots is revived. That English lawyers seem bent upon reviving the old feuds, or at least reckless whether that happens or not, seems painfully evident. To Nemo, I have only to say that the Anglified Scot is an historical character, a canker in our flesh, which must just be endured. I wish no angry correspondence with him. I am, etc. Thistledown. Sir, might I suggest, as there is at present a very general awakening as to what is really Scotland's legal position according to the terms of the Treaty of Union, that some patriotic lawyer would publish, in cheap pamphlet form, the Act itself, as passed by the Scottish Parliament, and also show all the alterations, repeals, etc., which have been since made upon it by the British Parliament. It is marvellous the ignorance that exists as to this document. I hold that, next to the Ten Commandments, it is the most important rule of faith and works for every Scotsman, and yet I meet daily with well-informed men, even public teachers, who never read it. It should be spread broadcast over the entire country previous to the meeting of the National Convention to be held in Edinburgh during next January. I am, etc. John Romans Thistledown published the Treaty of Union many months ago. Article 5 of 7 As taken from the Scotsman, dated Tuesday the 25th of December, 1883. English Jurisdiction in Scottish Cases Sir, I think after your leaders and the letters of a barrister and a chancery lawyer, very few of your readers but will be fully aware of the gravity and importance of the R. Ewing case. But as some of them may be inclined to say, this is a rich man's affair and the rich are well able to look after themselves, I would like to point out that it is a lawsuit in which every Scotsman is interested, be he rich or poor, the working man as well as the millionaire. There is a distinct conflict between England and Scotland as to our constitution. The former claims jurisdiction over all Scotsmen. The latter denies this right and points to the terms of the agreement between the two countries as well as the usages of international law. Admit the claims of England in this case and where will they end? If the civil law of Scotland is to be set aside, will the criminal law of Scotland not also be abolished? And how this would affect every Scotsman we will see. Slander in Scotland is a civil offence. The party libelled can claim damages by an action at law, nothing more. Slander in England is a criminal offence, 
punishable at the discretion of the judge, I believe, to the extent of penal servitude. At any rate, one or two years' imprisonment with hard labour can be given. Now, suppose a domiciled Scotsman slanders an Englishman, or he thinks he is slandered. He may have the Scotsman arrested, put in jail and tried for a criminal offence in England, contrary to the laws of his own country. You must also bear in mind that in England there is no public prosecutor like our procurator fiscal. But every man avenges his own quarrel, so that an Englishman might be able to inflict untold misery upon our countrymen before he could clear himself from the clutches of the law, and his only remedy for this would be an expensive action in England for malicious prosecution. No Scotsman, be he rich or poor, would be free from this danger if we allow England to overmaster our laws. It is well known that all classes of Scotsmen have been afflicted of late years with English lawsuits. I myself, some months ago, was asked to serve an English writ upon a Leith merchant, but declined. And the amount of loss in money and anxiety, as well as time, it would be impossible to calculate. Now, as all this infliction is contrary to the Constitution, I would like to ask, is there no redress? Surely English courts will not be permitted to affect us and we to have no remedy. If the meeting of the 16th of January would take up this question and get the parties wronged to send in a note of their expenses, they would have a constitutional right to have them returned by the Treasury. No other plan, in my opinion, would bring the matter so vividly before the conscience of Englishmen or put so quick a stop to the usurpation of their courts. I am, etc. Thistledown. Sir, I observed in your columns of today Mr Justice Chitty's remarks on Lord Fraser's judgment in the Orr Ewing case in the Chancery Division of the High Court of Justice in London. He appears to be astonished at Lord Fraser's decision, but if he knew the law of Scotland, perhaps he might not be so surprised. Englishmen, as a rule, being ignorant of Scottish affairs in general. Perhaps Mr Justice Chitty may be more astonished yet. I would like to ask him by what right English courts presume to dictate to the highest court in our country. Not by the Treaty of Union, certainly. We don't want English law in Scotland any more than Englishmen would wish Scottish law in England. England would like to think Scotland as a country and make her a mere province of her own, but that will never be, I sincerely hope, as long as we have such men as Lord Rosebery and your valued correspondent, Thistledown. We want the down of the thistle blown all over Scotland just now, and for all good and true Scotsmen to demand their rights, not from England, but from the Parliament of Great Britain, rights which have too long been neglected and trodden underfoot, rights which anglicised Scots have done their best to hand over to our southern neighbour. Rights for which our forefathers fought and bled and won, until the thin edge of the wedge was inserted by English gold at the signing and completion of the Treaty of Union.
You kindly inserted my last letter, which makes me hope you may also insert this. I am, etc. A. Brandane. Article 6 of 7, as taken from the Scotsman, dated Saturday the 29th of December, 1883. Sir, I have read over twice with the deepest interest the letters of A Scotch Advocate and W.S., and while agreeing with all that has been written, would like to point out a danger to which some of your correspondents are leading us. The assumption of powers over domiciles Scotsmen by the English courts, constituting, as it does, a real grievance, they call out for legislation to remedy the evil. Now let us see what this amounts to. There is a conflict between English and Scottish law, and a bill is introduced into the British Parliament to settle the dispute, but in the House of Commons, England has 489 members, Scotland 60. There are from 30 to 40 English lawyers in the House. Scotland has only three or four. The English members, although they are well enough disposed towards Scotland, will be guided by their own lawyers, and we would simply be borne down by numbers. But what good could come of such a bill? Language cannot be found stronger than the 19th article of the Treaty of Union, which forbids the English courts interfering in our law. But they do interfere, says your correspondent, to our serious loss. What then? The remedy, in my opinion, is an appeal to the government to restrain the English judges from breaking the constitution. It is simply intolerable for them to be permitted to do so. I cannot conceive it possible that Mr Gladstone would permit this iniquity to go on if it were formally brought before him. Perhaps it may be considered rash in me to differ from so able a lawyer as W.S. on the transfer of government stock. But to my mind, he made a great mistake in going to Chancery when the Bank of England refused to transfer the government stock on the order of the Court of Session, the government stock being British, inasmuch under the courts of Scotland as England. And when the bank refused to transfer, he should have complained to the Home Secretary or brought an action against the Crown in the Court of Session. It is this weak submission to the English courts that has brought about our present trouble. I am, etc. Thistledown. Article 7 of 7, as taken from the Scotsman, dated Saturday the 6th of December, 1884. Berwick on Tweed. Sir, your correspondent, a Scotch liberal, seems to think Berwick-on-Tweed is a Scottish town. If he inquires into the matter, however, he will find that it is an English town under the English law, and in no way connected with Scotland, but in sentiment. His reference to the Treaty of Union I don't understand. Perhaps it would be as wise to say as little on that subject as possible, as under the Treaty we are only entitled to 45 members. I hear so many strange references to the Treaty of Union that I rub my eyes and wonder if I have ever read that precious document. 
It is not a treaty that the Scots have much reason to be proud of, but it would be well for the people of Scotland if they studied it a little more, if for no other reason than that it would prevent some people from referring to a page of history they have never read. Public opinion is slowly but surely awakening in Scotland to the fact that Scotland cannot be governed properly from London. The latest exposure of the educational muddle is opening our eyes to the ignorance, arrogance and conceit of our Cockney rulers. May each loyal Scot earnestly pray that the rule of such blockheads may soon come to a close. I am, etc. Thistledown.